Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A quick shout out to our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in Des Moines' Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, Gateway is uh, open as a grocery store and takeout. You can still get breakfast, lunch, and supper at Gateway's takeout service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in East Village of Des Moines, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is also open for takeout. That's Hawk, H-O-Q, restaurant. So welcome to the Fallon Forum. Again, later in the program, we'll be talking with Carolyn Dirk Westerkamp about how to create artistic architecture in historic neighborhoods that while you're also trying to be sensitive to green technologies to you know to the many concerns that are being presented by climate change and the need for renewable energy uh, we'll also be talking about the um about the book uh, trespassing across america with author ken ilgunas and we'll discuss the problem with waste with so much food being wasted right now and uh what that means, not just in the current situation with the coronavirus, but in the long haul. But first, um, I want to talk about the movie that just came out on, on, on the day before Earth Day, uh, Planet of the Humans. Now, I haven't asked, I, I haven't um, probed into this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that must be some kind of a reference to Planet of the Apes. Which, again, if you remember, the Planet of the Apes did not go real well for the humans. Well, Planet of the Humans doesn't really go, well, go real well for the humans either. And the, um, the movie uh, skewers uh, the climate movement's sacred cows, uh, both sacred cows such as wind turbines, uh, solar panels, but also sacred cows like Bill McKibben, Al Gore, the Sierra Club. The, the film, you know, it, it basically kind of condemns the uh, takeover of the environmental movement by, by capitalism, by billionaires. Now, as, as I like to call it, the National Nonprofit Industrial Complex, those are my words, it's, it's um, you know, according to the film, they're no longer fighting against those who have a profit motive, but they're collaborating with them. And the, the point of, uh, you know, Jeff Gibbs, his point, and again, this is also a Michael Moore film, but Jeff Gibbs is the, uh, is the narrator and the producer. But the, um, the premise is that, that, that these organizations uh, got way too cozy with entities that don't have don't have humanity's best interest in mind or the planet's best interest in mind so basically you know you know you can't just replace gas and coal and oil with solar and wind and pretend that that's somehow solving the problem it's a problem the film contends that we can't really innovate ourselves out of and one one one, one reason is solar panels themselves uh, there's a lot of fossil fuels you'll use in the manufacturing of those panels. And there's an incredible number of rare metals that are extracted, uh, oftentimes, usually through very destructive environmental practices. Those metals are, are extracted in order to build those panels. And again, the same could be said of your computer, your cell phone, the microphone I'm using to do this program. You know, th there's, a, there's a lot of stuff being destroyed to maintain our lifestyle and some would say uh, most would probably say that's okay we need to have there need to be some sacrifice zones if we're going to have the kind of you know, the, the kind of um, quality of life that people have come to deserve yeah and if not deserve at least demand so the um again the the, the movie is critical of uh, of of renewable energies not just because of the of the uh, amount of fossil fuels and rare metals used in making them, but even, for example, uh, storage batteries. Storage batteries are touted as the, the last obstacle that we need to, well, once we get that totally figured out, it doesn't matter if the sun, sun isn't shining or if the wind isn't blowing. We'll be able to store that energy. We won't need coal or oil or gas anymore. But the problem is, of course, that those storage batteries themselves require a lot of effort. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of fossil fuel consumption to to build them. So again, that's the premise. Some would say the uh, the that the uh, the movie's authors go way too far. One of those is um, is Josh Fox, 
uh, a filmmaker himself, an environmentalist, a climate activist. Uh, both Josh Fox and um, Michael Mann, a very respected climate scientist, they signed a petition uh, asking that um, the film not be distributed. They wanted, they, they asked that the film be taken down and they claimed that there were errors, falsehoods, and misinformation. Well, I, 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 I have not, my, my casual glance at what those errors, falsehoods, and misinformation were, I, I, could, I, I didn't see a very clear explanation of what they were. I don't doubt that there's plenty of opinion in this movie. There's certainly plenty of perspective, and you could argue that the perspective is off. But um, it really surprised me that <laughs> people who are otherwise open-minded would say that this film should not be shown. <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of fright. Well, that's kind of frightening. I I I think that um, that kind of a uh, uh, censorship censorism. Oh, there I go again. Censorship. I I I suddenly felt like I was channeling George Bush and trying to invent my own words. No, the word censorship works just fine. So anyway, yeah, that that's disturbing. Now, um, a publication called Point of View, Point of View Magazine, I believe, calls, quote, it calls the film an all-out assault on the green movement by someone who believed in the cause and now feels betrayed. Well, I want to look at the uh, film for its virtue, for its, on its own basis, on its own merits. And what I'm seeing, again, part, part, part for me what resonates here is the, um, is the, uh, Criticism of the National Industrial Nonprofit Complex. And I, I, I agree, it is, it, is, um, it is not friendly to local environmental movements. And I, and I know there are going to be those who disagree with me, but um, I see these big organizations as pumping lots of money from the grassroots into coffers in a bank in Washington, D.C. usually, uh, and then using it to, to you know, pay for expensive... Salaries, expensive programming, uh, and to um, you know, in, in some cases, in plenty, plenty of cases, to collaborate with entities that again don't have the interests of the local folks in mind. And again, a lot of the movie initially focuses on solar and wind, but then it gets into biomass, and that's where it really gets ugly because uh, you know, biomass. Okay, the name sounds good. Okay, we're just taking waste product and we're we're burning it at a high heat and creating energy. Well, apparently a lot of biomass is uh, forests. And, um, you know, it isn't just the, the, you know, the little woodlot out back. It's a, it's a lot of forests all over the world being cut down. A lot of them are being, apparently being shipped to Europe. What else is new, right? You know, colonialism, take, take, take materials from the new world and ship it over to uh, the old world. But the, um, you know, it's interesting that when when the uh, when when Jeff Gibbs confronts Bill McKibben and Al Gore, um, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, others on the um, on the question of whether biomass is acceptable, they're either pretty evasive or just outright supportive. The only person that he interviewed of any environmental uh, you know stature, in terms of big names that uh, that agreed with him that it's problematic was uh, Vandava. Shiva. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think the critic, and, and again, I like, I like some of these folks. I certainly, I certainly have a lot of respect for Bill McKibben. I think he's done some great work. But um, I do think that, <laughs> again, I'd love to have him respond to the film. I haven't seen that response yet. Maybe it's coming. But uh, he does seem to be pretty evasive on some of these important questions, uh, such as how is 350.org funded? Uh, and also, um, what, you know why? Um, you know why do you think biomass is such a good idea? So uh, again, I, I think those are legitimate questions, and I think um, I think the fact that some of these big organizations have uh, you know gotten into bed with fossil fuel interest groups, uh, and again, some of these groups and some of these fossil fuel companies, some of these big energy companies like Mid American, they're doing some they're doing work in renewables that uh, is being lauded as moving us away from fossil fuels. But, um, you know, at what expense? Again, I think a lot of the criticism of, um, of wind is relevant to Iowa. Uh, in the film, we look at a mountaintop in Vermont being leveled in order to install 
a large wind uh, turbine farm. And certainly we've seen that here in, uh, in Iowa with uh, farmland being, um, you know, taken over for wind turbines. And again, just from a purely economic point of view, the landowners are making a bunch of money with those wind turbines. Uh, they're getting about 10 grand a year per turbine. And not just for one year like you would. It isn't just, it isn't just one payment like landowners got when the Dakota Access Pipeline was put in. You got one payment and you were done. And in no time at all, you know, that, 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 that payment was probably gone. Uh, but then the other problem is, of course, the landowners who don't want these turbines, who have to deal with the noise. Um, and yeah, yes, they do make noise. <laughs> the lights flashing. The, um, you know, the visual transformation of the horizon from what used to be an open space to one with towering machines. So these are concerns. But... And the film doesn't even focus that much on the visual problem. It, it, it focuses on the fact that a lot of fossil fuels are used to make these products. Uh, and that as we move into biomass, the amount of destruction of uh, landscapes is, is, is unfathomable. And the, the closing scene of the film is, is deeply disturbing because it shows two orangutans trying to survive in a forest being destroyed to create biomass. And uh, I, won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't be a spoiler on this, but uh, it gets worse and worse the more you watch it, what happens. It's terrible. And um, you know, maybe if we put a face of a human-like animal on it, people can start caring more. But the, um, the bottom line, again, maybe there's, maybe there's some errors in this movie. Maybe there's some misinformation. But the bottom line is, uh, again, I got two takeaways for me. One is that true environmental activism is at the local level. You can't trust big organizations to do the right thing. I, I just, I, I believe that. I think when groups get really big in terms of their size, in terms of their scope, they lose focus, they lose connection. I, I just think it's inevitable. You can't have big and beautiful at the same time. And so for that reason, you've got to keep the movement local. And you've got to support the local people doing it. And I, I say that to people in, in, across the country. You know, don't, don't support the work we're doing here in Iowa. Support the work that people are doing elsewhere in your community. But the big takeaway for me is this. And I'll read this to you. This is from the very end of the film. Uh, Jeff Gibbs says, The path to change comes from awareness. There is a way out of this. We humans must accept that infinite growth on a finite planet is suicide. We must accept that our human presence is already far beyond sustainability and all that that implies. We must take control of our environmental movement and our future from billionaires and the permanent war on planet Earth. They are not our friends. Less must be the new more. And instead of climate change, we must long last accept that it's not the carbon dioxide molecule that's destroying the planet. It's us. It's not one thing, but everything we humans are doing. A human-caused apocalypse. If we get ourselves under control, all things are possible. And if we don't, yeah. So I, I think, again, the problem, as the film sums it up, overconsumption, overindustrialization, overpopulation. That's, that's a pretty good analysis. And, and again, you don't, you don't innovate your way out of that problem with new technologies. You, you, get, you get out of that problem by drastically changing how you live on the planet. And again, this is where I think the, the, the visions and viewpoints of, the, of, in, of Native communities really have a lot to say with how we should be uh, reconstructing our footprint on planet Earth. Anyway, it's, it's a great movie to see. Even if you don't agree with my take on it, Planet of the Humans, check it out. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. 
Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, Ed Fallon, your host here. Let's uh, take a second to thank a couple of our local business partners, uh, Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. They're still open Tuesday through Saturday for takeout. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Yes, so welcome back to the uh, program, folks. Uh, with us this segment of the program are Carol and Dirk Westerkamp of Studio 192 in Des Moines. The uh, challenge that a lot of architects face, are architects with a social conscience who are trying to, trying to do the right thing, one of the challenges is how do you incorporate green architecture into older historic neighborhoods? And uh, Carol and Dirk uh, have a lot to say about that. Hello, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you doing, Ed? Good. Hi, Ed. Hi, Carol. Hi, Derek. So, um, let's start with you, Derek. Uh, well, you know, uh, your website, which I really—it's really beautifully done. Uh, it meant it says that uh, your responsibility, our responsibility, is to design high-performing, healthy buildings and art that positively impact the people, the environment, and communities they serve. Uh, that's um, that's a big plateful. How do you uh, how do you grapple with that? Well, I tell you what, Ed, the beginning in kind of the history of architecture was to be, uh, and even the word, the oranges that would come from the chief creator. And so we feel a responsibility to not just uh, do drawings or not just to design, but actually try and um, help make the actual creations to go ahead and uh, design and then put into place our thoughts and ideas to carry it through the end. One of those, one of the phrases that kind of, I guess, aspire to that actually is a, a quote from St. Francis of Assisi, and it says that someone that works with their hands is a laborer, someone that works with their hands and their head is a craftsman, and someone that works with their hands, head, and heart is an artist. And so we like to try and take the work that we are commissioned to do and move it really to the level of art, where we are... Right. And, and, someone who, and someone who just works with their vocal cords is probably a talk show host or an opera star. But uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, that, that's, uh, and, you, and you're, if my understanding is correct, you're more on the architectural side, and Carol, you're more on the arts, artistic side of it? Yeah, that's, that's, I would say that. Yeah. And how do you, how do you integrate, uh, integrate those two, Carol? Well, a lot of crossover we've had is in our prior life. We have um, collectively 60 years of doing business and space planning, design and development, and working with clients starting businesses. So as far as like, we've had bits and pieces and everyone that I had worked with in my prior life wanted us to go ahead and help them as like a sole source or one source. So they didn't have to deal with like a graphic designer and then deal with the architect and then deal with the fabricator to get their sign done or to find a building. So it really kind of was, uh, you stepped into it, I guess, with the past history that we've dealt with our clients in the past. So 
it was kind of a one, two, three for Dirk and I to combine hmm. and go forward. All right. And, you know, and again, there's got to be particularly uh, challenging elements when you're working in an historic neighborhood. And you're in the Sherman Hill neighborhood, as are we. And Sherman Hill is, I believe, Des Moines' oldest neighborhood. It's uh, certainly one of the older, more historic, more, um, more uh, you know, recognized historic districts in, in the state of Iowa. And as such, there are some pretty serious parameters in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. Does it, is it challenging to work around those, or do those perhaps you know, provide some kind of a framework that, that is helpful for your perspective? I would guess I would respond with yes to that. There are, uh, as, as architects, as designers, as artists, um, every project we have has its unique um, challenges. Uh, I've been, it's kind of interesting, Carol said we had over 60 years of exper combined experience, which is pretty amazing since we're both just in our late 20s, right? <laughs> so, uh, um, no, it's, Something as diverse as I've worked on multiple multiple ethanol plants uh, throughout the central United States, certainly didn't have historic um, concerns. They had their own set of challenges of how you go about doing that completely different. So when you're looking at a historic neighborhood and then even looking at you know green and sustainable design, those are all different aspects that you kind of have to roll together with how you go ahead and accomplish those goals. And ultimately, that is kind of the fun challenge and opportunity of doing art and architecture where you can um, meet those individual challenges and goals depending on a different project and location and your client. Yeah. So, again, for example, I know uh, in, in our neighborhood, you're only allowed to use certain types of siding. You're only allowed to do certain sort of things with your garage i guess we we can't even call them garages really they're called carriage houses i believe uh we, we've also there's also the requirement that certain street light there, there are certain type of a historic street lamp i've always wondered about that too because i thought if you really wanted to get historic on street lamps you'd have complete darkness uh <laughs> but, but uh do those i mean carol do those specific things present any kind of a challenge that that you know presents an insurmountable hurdle at times well absolutely you know everyone has their ideas when they come to us for a design and then when they're told, hey, that's not quite within the scope of the Sherman Hill Historic um, Society to say, let's go forward and, and try to be a community and keep the, the past with more natural um, materials or designs, like the lighting. Traditionally in this area should only be down lighting, but then you talked about other types of lighting that we have. And so I mean, even that particular um, topic has, you know, an inch thick that you could go forward with all the materials that you have to follow and guidelines. But I think if if anyone is going to be present as part of a, this community, they they respect that, and so they they're looking really to have like guidelines to follow. All of our art has more of a a functionality. You know, we do stairs. We do sculpture, we do um, interiors. So a lot of the guidelines when you go to the interior part of a building isn't really, um, doesn't have a lot of scope that it has to follow. The exterior is mainly hmm. um, what they want to keep true. So we've found people, like you said, they want to add on to a garage or they want our carriage house. And I think they're looking at us, hey, can we, you know, what types of windows can we have? What's traditional? So there's a lot of resources that, you know, we can give them to kind of start their design. And then the committee really is pretty good about, okay, you know, how can we help meet those designs in the middle? Yeah. When you say the committee, you mean the Historic Preservation Commission? Yeah, there's yeah. a couple. There's a state level, and then there's also a local level. Right. So... Yeah. yeah. And ov ov overall good to work with? I would say, you know, any city um, has their guidelines. So, yeah, I mean, trying to follow their guidelines mm -hmm. and meet your design, I, I think, yeah, for the most part. Now, just to make it even more complicated, of course, you've got, uh, you know, you, you, you've got the historic district to, to consider. 
again, which I think is important. Um, it's, it adds a lot of integrity and character to the neighborhood. And then you've got your, you know, the basic needs for what you're trying to accomplish for your clients. And now we've got the whole new element, really isn't that new, I suppose, but it's becoming more focused of, of, of climate change and how, and how developing more, you know, more environmentally friendly systems is becoming more and more essential. And yet we have to also consider how, for example, you know, how, how solar or wind or, or geothermal or other, other elements might work into an historic neighborhood where those weren't ever considered. considered. I mean, instead you have the coal chute, <laughs> which uh, right. some, some of the homes in the neighborhood still have their coal chutes, you know. So how do you, how well, do you integrate those, um, those new concerns about climate change into this process? Well, you know, buildings, uh, for better or worse, are one of the more significant users of energy in the world. Um, they we have a lot of them, and they they collectively use a lot of our energy. And certainly, uh, anything we can do, and it's not just energy use; it's energy use and trying to move towards a zero waste stream. And uh, obviously, one, one I was very actually personally very excited to see is when they relocated a number of uh, homes that might have been demolished in another setting. And they moved them all into this neighborhood, which was really refreshing to see. Rather than um, uh, adding to a landfill, they moved and they kind of made a new space and a very appropriate infill here. Yeah, I assume that's a, that, I assume that's a growing um, phenomenon around the country. Uh, but we had what six older homes moved here. Again, the the downside of that is I believe they built a parking lot where they where those homes were at one one time. But uh, it was pretty amazing to see these homes being moved in the middle of the night, uh, uh, with wires being lifted, signs being moved. Um, it was it was kind of an amazing spectacle. We actually got up early to watch it. It was <laughs> it was so incredible. Yeah, it was. It, it's amazing. But what's nice is at the end of the day, it, it proved everyone that can be done, and so that's nice to to talk about it. And so that everyone realizes it's it's certainly not insurmountable at all to move a building somewhere that uh, can be appropriate. And and other things like technology, as you're all aware, I mean, we used to have incandescent lights, which uh, were not uh, they were the least efficient lighting we've kind of had. And we moved in the the compact fluorescent phase there for a while, and that wasn't super great to adopt because the color index, you know, the, the color, the light it gave off and how they performed under cold weather and things just, it wasn't quite the fit. And now we moved in LEDs that are inexpensive, right? Highly energy efficient, uh, an infinite almost array of colors that it can put out. And so those start to become, uh, you know, one small thing where technology has moved us to a point where we could really, nice um yeah. really nice solutions for that so let me and, uh, yeah let me ask carol you know as an artist i mean art is concerned with a, a number of, uh, of 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 elements one of them is beauty and um to me a beautiful community is one that has well has nice homes uh and, and a variety of homes single family um you know uh, rental units as well uh and and also you know, enough green space to provide that, um, that, that the places for kids to play, just the, the, the stuff you can admire as you're walking by. Green space is pretty important and potentially pretty beautiful. Does, um, does some of your work involve uh, green space as well as uh, the built environment? Yeah, we actually try to incorporate. We're part of um, USGBC, which is a, a United States um, Green Building Council, and they have several different areas that we try to focus on. Drew talked, or Dirk talked about true zero waste, which was when they were moving the houses from one area to another. We incorporate that um, as well in some of our materials. We try to use as little and be most efficient as possible. Another one you mentioned, Ed, was well, that was the built environment for people. So things that are healthy, like when we went from lead-based paint into, you know, more zero, low uh, emissions of coverings and finishes. Like in this neighborhood, I would say um, our forte probably is more um, like right up your alley with trying to incorporate multiple functioning units of like vert for a vertical garden or hydroponics um, to, to use sculptures as a basis maybe as a bench 
um, and then go forward with like allowing more green space. Hmm. Um, when yeah. we first moved into this building, I mean, there was a lot of work to be done just to, to get it up to speed because it hadn't been loved. And we noticed a lot of improvement since we've moved into the area where, you know, people that really value space and value the buildings are trying to give it, um, you know, more care than it has had in the past. So I, we've seen definite improvement. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, this is all pretty interesting stuff. Um, again, thanks uh, for joining us. We've been talking with Carol and Dirk Westerkamp of Studio 192 in Des Moines' historic Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, good luck with your work, and uh, we'll see you around after the corona craze ends. <laughs> thanks, Ed. All Have right. a great day. Thanks, Appreciate folks. it. Thanks, Ed. Folks, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking with, uh, with the author of a book called Trespassing Across America. Yeah, there may be something illegal about that. We'll, uh, we'll talk, uh, talk with the author about that shortly when we come back from a break on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A quick shout out to a couple of our nonprofit partners who helped make this program possible. And thanks to uh, Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and promoting non-industrial renewable energy since 2016. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Learn how to turn your yard into dinner Go to birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Again, welcome back to the program. Uh, later in the program, we'll be talking about the phenomenal amount of food waste happening during this coronavirus crisis. But first, I want to go to our phone and welcome uh, Ken Ilgunis to the program. Ken is the author of a book called Trespassing Across America. And yes, he does not lie. He did trespass. Ken, welcome to the show. It's great to be on it. Yeah. So you walked... Uh, the entire length of the proposed Keystone XL pipeline, that's what, close to a couple thousand miles? Uh, somewhere in between 1,700 and 1,900. I had a few detours, so I'm not quite sure how many miles I put in, but somewhere in there. So, of course, uh, the pipeline had not been built. Well, some segments had been built, the southern portions, but some portions had not yet been built. And so, at times, you were simply just cutting cross-country, going across ranch land and farmer's fields, and how many times were you shot? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't shot. However, my, my trek coincided with pretty much every state's hunting season, so I'd be hearing uh, guns going off left and right all the time. It was kind of pheasant season, uh, but, but no one, to my knowledge, took aim at me. Okay, to your knowledge, that's an important qualifier. <laughs> so hey, let's let's get the standard questions out of the way. And I say standard because these are the these are the three questions that I get asked the most about my walk across the country with the Great March for Climate Action. How far did you walk each day? Um, I think when you average it out, it's about 
13 miles, but that's, of course, including days off and stuff like that. And I did have this horrible shin splint injury. But once I really got going and felt good walking between 20 and 25 miles a day. And that's with a pack on your back. I had about um, 40 pounds. I, I'd usually be carrying anywhere between one and seven days worth of food, so that would uh, that the weight would vary from day to day, but typically around 40 pounds, yeah. One of the other standard questions that I always get is, how many pairs of shoes did you go through? Three pairs of shoes. I started with some trail runners, um, just with some very lightweight shoes, because I was trying to go ultra-light. But because of the nature of my walk, in which I was trespassing through cow pasture and hay fields and cornfields and stuff like that, those shoes took uh, just a beat down in my feet were just a mess. They were getting all wet every single day. Yeah. So then I moved on to uh, proper hiking boots, and that kind of solved all my yeah. foot problems. And uh, other than the splints, uh, the uh, shin splints, and the uh, and the the foot in foot problems on the wrong shoes did you get sick or injured at all beyond that um no i never got sick at all it was a very solitary hike it was four and a half months long and you know i would i would speak to maybe one person a day or one person every couple of days so i didn't have many opportunities to to catch um a virus um in the first month it, it was pretty rough on my feet because i don't think there's any way to get into shape for a through hike other than to be on a through hike so i had blister problems shin splints uh gashes on the backs of my ankles it took it took my body about a month to um to adjust and by the end four and a half months in um i, I just felt like i was ready to keep walking across the world yeah, I, I got that feeling when I finished the uh, Great March for Climate Action. I felt like I couldn't stop walking, and that's when I decided to follow the uh, proposed path of the Dakota Access Pipeline. But um, yeah, you make a good point that you you, uh, you you saw an average of one person a day. Well, that would probably be a, a good a good um, solution to trying to avoid trying to accomplish some social distancing in the coronavirus crisis. Uh, you could just go on another walk and. If you saw only one person a day, you'd probably be effectively social distancing better than most of us. That would be the way to do it. However, I think everybody has that idea because, <laughs> you know, things like the Appalachian Trail were kind of overloaded. and A lot of those trailheads have been shut down. I'm, I'm speaking to you from North Carolina right now, and I'm within a, a driving distance of about five state parks, almost all of which have been closed because of right. overcrowding. So I think a lot of bright minds were thinking alike, and it, it, it was just too much of a thing. Well, they would have had to be trespassing like you did. Or, or you can do that. <laughs> and um, I, I am writing a piece for the, the Washington Post right now. Uh, it, it's not confirmed that it's going to print, but my my argument is if we did open up private land a lot of our state and national parks wouldn't be overburdened and so many more of us would have the opportunity to get to the to get the recreation we very much need in times like this hmm. um, so so yeah hopefully that that article will come out so yeah, let me ask you i know you you didn't set out simply to trespass uh, you you set out with a purpose you were following the proposed path of the keystone pipeline what was the uh, what was the stated intent of your of your mission? It was a, a few things. I, I should say at first that it was just this unusual draw out onto the the Great Plains and the Keystone XL. I can't say like I knew exactly what I wanted out of this trip or what I wanted the trip to accomplish. I just knew that it just it excited me um, and it, it, it intrigued me and. Even though it would take me into you know a lonely cow pasture in South Dakota, I thought I was kind of going to the center of the universe because you know the, the Keystone XL. It was such a big fight at the time. It just seemed like one of the most important environmental fights of the 21st century, in which kind of the habits of our past were clashing with hopes for our future. This is where industry was fighting in, in, environmentalists. 
so um, I just kind of wanted to be out there in the middle, all, middle of all of it and maybe gain a voice or nuance or insight or something and eventually uh, a hook of it. Hello, Kenny, you still there? I am there. Okay. Yes, I'm there. We had, uh, we had, we had a little little, little glitch there, but that, that's fine. I think we can move on. The um, so so that's a that's a, a a laundry list of things you hope to accomplish. Would you say that you've accomplished some of that? Um, I I don't know. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure what I wanted to accomplish exactly. I, I knew I wanted to challenge myself, physically challenge myself. I wanted to see if I could walk across the country. I did that. Uh, this particular trip excited me because, you know, I used to be a, a park ranger up in um, up in Alaska. I worked for the gates of the Arctic National Park, and I had the great luxury of getting paid to go camping and canoeing and walking and stuff like that in very wild terrain. So uh, uh, a hiking trail like the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, they didn't intrigue me or excite me, but the idea of going across the Great Plains doing a, a trip that no one had ever done before and, and trespassing, do it over private country, allowing myself to see something that um, many people haven't seen, that was really exciting. Um, and then there was just kind of just doing something for something more than myself. You know, maybe this could be for the climate, the, the earth, other people. And I thought the very least I could do to go there and talk to landowners and see the land and report on it and reflect on right. it and write on it and just see what comes from it. And you started in northern Alberta, Al Al northern Alberta at the Tar, I think uh, Fort McMurray, I believe. And uh, you got to see the tar sands up close. I believe you took a, a plane flight over the tar sands. And I've always imagined from photographs I've seen that the tar sands must be the most hideous place on earth. What, what's your take from having seen it up close? That's right. Yeah, I began my trip in Denver, Colorado. I stuck my thumb out and I uh, hitchhiked all the way up to northern Alberta, stopped in Fort McMurray. Couldn't see the tar sands from the ground, so I bought this flight over them. And the, the big takeaway from that is that they are massive. You have to understand that just a couple decades ago, this was pristine boreal forest. But when you're up in one of these plains, it's as if you're looking from one horizon to the other, and you see nothing but this horrendous mud pit where they're digging out the ground and collecting the stuff called bitumen, which has a, a bunch of oil in it. And, you know, kind of, um, I was expecting to feel nothing but moral disgust and revulsion. And, you know, it's strange that I didn't feel that in the moment because it's just kind of a whole landscape obliterated. It's kind of an abstract concept. And I just don't think we kind of have the inner language to even grapple with something so huge and magnificent. And, and weirdly, I also felt this, this very odd feeling of being impressed. I was impressed at um, all this human labor and ingenuity can go into something so massive and destructive and amazing. And I felt this as well in um, Port Arthur, Texas. That's where all like a big re refinery town. And, you know, I was impressed not because what we're doing is good. I was impressed because what we're doing is amazing. And when you just look at how complex and um, just the engineering marvels that go into these things, you think to yourself, if we can do this, you know, what else can we do? Well, in, in, impressive, but also phenomenally destructive, destructive to the point of threatening, you know, threatening our, our, own, our, our own species with extinction, uh, let alone having initiated the sixth mass extinction of... Uh, you know many other life forms, so yeah, impressive, but but uh, disturbing at a very deep level. Um, related to that, earlier in this program, we spoke about the uh, the the new movie, uh, Planet of the Humans. I'm curious if you've seen Planet of the Humans yet. Uh, no, I'm I'm dying to. How was it? Disturbing. <laughs> uh, and and there, <laughs> there there are scenes that remind me of what I imagine the tar sands to look like. Uh, an area of great environmental beauty, 
uh, an ecosystem that it was totally functional and and productive and you know you know teeming with life destroyed and there there's several several opportunities to witness those kinds of destructive phenomenon during during the movie and again the premise it's it's a real it's a real hard hit on on uh on some of the larger environmental nonprofit groups and you know it, it the, the the bottom line is the, the you know it's it's not just about climate or about um, innovating our way out of the technological mess we find ourselves in. It's about understanding that we have uh, we have a we have an uh, we have a problem of of, of of excess excessive consumption, of overpopulation, uh, of overindustrialization, and it seems I mean when you describe the tar sands, and again from the you know the, the handful of photos I've seen. It just seems like that's that that's an emblem of the of the problem, and that even though we're, you know, even though we're going to substitute other types of energy for the bitumen that's being mined there, we're going to continue destroying landscapes that uh, that we need that need us. And it's convenient for the the fossil fuel industry for these places to mostly be out of sight, out of mind, and right. these far away and remote places that no one really gets to see. And, you know, when I was walking the Keystone XL and speaking with landowners, I can't say that I really changed many minds. You know, most people's minds are, are made up already about climate change and stuff like that. But the one mm -hmm. thing I think I was able to accomplish is, you know, when I sat down with some of these folks and I started talking about my journey and they, they said, oh, you were up in um, northern Alberta, you saw the tar sands, and I'd bring out my iPad and I'd show them video footage of, of when I was flying over, and these people would just be horrified. You know, before the Keystone XL, it just seemed like this, you know, another ordinary pipeline that, yeah, perhaps had to go through their land. But when they saw the actual consequences of it, they were horrified. So I think if we can help people make that connection, it can it can be a good thing. Right. Hey, one more question, Ken. Uh, again, you you walked the length of the proposed Keystone Pipeline, which uh, under President Obama had been uh, canceled, and then as soon as President Trump took office, he reignited both the Keystone XL Pipeline and the Dakota Access Pipeline, and yet just this month, the uh, Chief Justice, the Chief District um, a Judge in Montana, Brian Morris, ruled that uh, construction on the permit uh, was to stop. The, the permit was not to be not to go forward because the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had uh, approved it on invalid grounds, and this is a big deal. I again, it's hard to say what happens, but right now it's expected that this might take a while for the courts to continue to to proceed with this. So. Any thoughts on the current status of Keystone and whether we, you know, whether it, it might in the long run not find not be built? It's 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 been a long fight, hasn't it? I mean, we yeah. started as a country talking about Keystone XL way back in 2009, 2010. So you know, we're looking at almost 10 years of just talking about this one piece of infrastructure, and uh, it, it does seem strange that you know we're trying to move forward on this um, old-school conveyance of, of energy when oil seems to be as um, uh, we're in kind of a, a surplus right now, so it seems kind of like the, the most uh, the, the silliest time to be trying to get more oil. And, I, you know, I wish I had the magic eight ball to say, yes, this thing's going to go forward. Yes, it's not. And, you know, I, I hope it does get ultimately rejected somehow at some point. But at the same time, I think the fight against the Keystone XL was a success, whether or not this pipeline is laid. Maybe it won't be a success for the actual farmers and ranchers and, and landowners, but I think it was a success for the larger environmental movement because they've made it very difficult for any other fossil fuel infrastructure project go forth. You know, the energy insiders call this the keystoneization, when these previously uncontroversial projects are now 
um, under a whole bunch of criticism yeah. and scrutiny. So in that way, I think the Keystone Excel flight has been a success. Well, thanks for doing your part in that effort. Oh, it was a very small part, and, you know, a lot of that walk was, was selfish, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I was able to... <laughs> well, I'm glad I was able to see the country and write about it. And selfish or, selfish or altruistic, it's a great read, and I highly recommend people pick up a copy of Trespassing Across America by Ken Ilgunis. Uh, where's the best place for folks to pick up a copy of your book, Ken? Um, ordinarily, I would say your... Um, local indie bookstore, but right now a lot of those are closed, so I'm afraid you might have to go um, looking online. You should have no problem finding it with a quick Google. All right. Again, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Kendall Gunas, the author of Trespassing Across America. When we come back, Kathy Burns will join us. We'll talk about the problems with food waste. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. local business partners for helping to make this program possible. Thanks in particular to Gateway Market and Cafe located at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store and still a great place to get everything you need. Also a place for breakfast, lunch, and supper even during these times you can order takeout at Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Noche, Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. They're located just south of the Sculpture Park on Walnut Street and even though they're not open for live concerts you can still live stream concerts every Wednesday night and every Saturday night. That's Noche. So welcome back to the program, folks. And again, thanks for tuning in today uh, with me for this segment of our conversation, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And it's been hard not to notice the incredible uh, waste, the farmers having to destroy crops, to dump milk, uh, millions of pounds of onions rotting in a ditch. Um, and it's driving home, I think, the the reality of the fragility of our industrial food system, but also the, the importance of creating more local uh, systems at work across various um, crises. And uh, hopefully systems that don't waste the amount of food that we currently see being, um, you know, being disposed of. Right. Even without the coronavirus in effect, America typically wastes almost 50% of its food, whether that's through the uh, the the farming, ranching, fishing process in general, or through uh, transport of food by the time it gets to where we purchase it, whether that's a grocery store, a farmer's market, whichever. Um, and also just when people buy food, they don't always eat it all. And some of that goes to waste. So it is a big problem. But one of the questions that we can ask is, is why is food waste a problem? And, uh, you know, it costs money to waste food. That's, that's, one, that's one problem. Another problem it is... It costs money to waste food. It costs money to waste food because we're, we, money that could be invested not producing right. the amount of food that's wasted, of course, right. tends to cost quite but, a bit. But right now, of course, we have the situation where no, nobody saw the coronavirus. Well, actually, some did see the coronavirus crisis or a pandemic coming. But now we have a situation where restaurants are not doing the kind of business they were. Schools right. are closed. Um, we have food banks that are lined up, hours-long wait for hungry people, mm -hmm. and yet we have this food that can't get to them. So you know, the problem is, in some sense, uh, it's not, not the fact that we produce too much. We just have 
and now we're unable to get that food to the vend to the people who need it. Yep. Uh, it's instead of going to restaurants and schools, it's sitting there rotting, being dumped because it can't get to the people who are sitting for or standing for hours in line at food banks. Right, and uh, whereas typically even the production of food has a huge carbon footprint, now trying to get the food to where it needs to go is going to increase that carbon footprint. And we still have not only our, mm. our typical number of people, which is already too many, about 12% of American households are food insecure. Many more are becoming so because of the coronavirus. So it's, it's a, a big problem. Food waste always has been. And now it's getting worse. Yeah, and on the um, meat production front, uh, again, the worst coronavirus hotspots in the Upper Midwest—Wisconsin, Iowa, probably Minnesota, uh, certainly in South Dakota and Sioux Falls—they're at the meat packing plants. And uh, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about the injustices of what has happened in the meat packing industry and how workers were not given the right protection. Uh, OSHA was weakened to the point where it couldn't enforce. Uh, you know, existing regulations. And I will say, if I can put an aside on this, that the, that the League of United Latin American Citizens and a coalition of organizations has um, announced that there will be a boycott of Tyson and Smithfield, and I think some of the other packers as well, because of their mistreatment of workers, because they have failed to protect them, because in some cases they lied about the, the, uh, the data that was available about who was being infected at the plant, how many were being infected. And, um, and they, they deserve to be held accountable. In the meantime, though, the collateral damage there is you have farmers. Um, in many cases, these are large-scale industrial farms. And some, some would say it's hard to use the word farmer when you're talking about you know, Iowa Select or, or um, some of these other huge confinement operators that don't even live in Iowa. You know, you know what are they going to do with these hogs? Well, they're probably going to be slaughtered and not for consumption but to fill a ditch or a, a lagoon or some, I don't know where they're going to end up in a landfill, but uh, it's a problem. And it, it kind of points to the, the overall fragility of our industrial food system. Right. And and the, the ripple effect of all that, too, is the very people who have been producing food or, or food products for America can themselves become food insecure, especially if they've been producing food on a mass scale, what would normally be food, let's say corn, um, it's been, you know, it, it, it can feed livestock, it can feed our cars. but It can feed our high fructose corn syrup habit. But we, but we rarely just eat most of the corn that's grown in, in the United States. So the people who are producing food could themselves become food insecure, and, and, and especially if they don't grow food to eat, food to put on your table and eat. And that's really where I think the solution lies is, more people, not fewer people, but more people growing food to put on their table. Well, if it's an indication of anything uh, that's wrong with our agricultural system, I, in the past couple of weeks, I've had two farmers, I mean, full-time, you know, large-scale farmers, uh, ask me questions about how to grow food. <laughs> well, <laughs> because again, and I don't blame the farmers. It's, They're yeah. caught in a system that, that rewards uh, commodity crops that... Uh, that provides insurance for that, um, in some cases provides subsidies. You know, uh, in, in some cases, like in terms of hog production, if you're raising a conf hogs in a confinement, you actually get a property tax exemption. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't get that if you were, you, you, get, a, you get a tax break for the manure storage lagoon. Well, the way agriculture <laughs> works nowadays, though, I remember growing up, uh, my cousins had a farm, and we spent a lot of time on that farm. They had they had hogs, they had corn, they had sorghum and they soybeans and everything. They grew food, but they also had they had a garden, and mm. they fed their big family largely right. through growing their own green beans and sweet corn and the things that they put on their potatoes, things they put on their table. But the way farming is now, I don't think that a family farm has a lot of time to grow their own food in addition to growing the food products that are used throughout the country for other purposes. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, it may be a question of sloth, but I think you're right, though, in, in most cases. It's, I, I think it's a system. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I think they're, they're, they're definitely, there's work involved in food production, you know, especially when you're talking about growing a range of products, all, you know, many of them having different needs. And, I mean, you got potatoes that have one, 
set of demands. You have tomatoes that have another set of demands, even though they're related. But uh, yeah. potatoes, tomatoes, yeah, potatoes. What? what is anyway. Yeah. But anyway, the um, you know, it is work. But I think the, the, to your point, the bigger problem is it's a system. Uh, that is a treadmill that you, you get on that treadmill and you've got to spend more and more time doing the work that you're expected to do to bring in the subsidies you need to survive. And you've got to invest more and more money in bigger and bigger equipment. And, uh, you know, you don't have time to do a lot of other things. And oftentimes, even that's not going to work and you've got a second job. So I think, I think what we're trying to do in, in, in the Urban Center is to create awareness that we can have some not all, but mm-hmm. some food uh, security here uh, and not worry about whether the industrial food system collapses. Again, it's never going to be 100% perfect. We, we can't raise milk goats or, or milk cattle or livestock in the, uh, in, the, in the city of Des Moines. Oh, we've thought about goats. <laughs> we've, thought, <laughs> we've thought about a little area out back where we could keep a goat. But, you know, and then I remember having a goat in the garage when I was a kid. It's a loud, noisy, yeah. boisterous thing. But, you know, the truth is that on small-scale operations, whether they be CSAs or, or um, you know, farms that market to restaurants or farmers' markets, or urban farms like ours, uh, where they're just trying to feed yourself, there's very little waste. Because you, you put all that time and effort in, you don't want to see anything go to waste. Oh, my gosh. We have a tomato plant in a, in a different pot than usual this year outside. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw it leaning a little bit, and I about panicked. I wanted to tie that little baby up and make it okay. Right. Uh, but it's we a, don't waste food. It's the tomato version of a bottle calf. <laughs> <laughs> Do everything for it. Well, hey, uh, thanks for joining us today, Kathy. Uh, thanks for tuning into the program, folks. This is Ed Fallon. Your host, thanks to our production team, which includes Kathy and Sherry Herdina. Thanks to the uh, two stations in Iowa that rebroadcast this program and to the four or five stations around the country that pick it up through the Pacifica network. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, signing off today, April 27th on the Fallon Forum.